And welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm your host, Sean Clevo, and with me today on the panel is Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, y'all. Uh, how you doing? Today for yep. on the panel. So, yep. but I think it's still going to be awesome because I think our guest is uh, a great one, and it's somebody that a lot of people probably recognize once you start talking. It's Sean Wildermuth. Hey there, everyone. Hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> Excited to be on this podcast. Oh, thanks. Thank thanks, you for thanks. joining us. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to I want to get out of the way first. Going forward, I'm going to call Sean Claybo, Claybo for this podcast. So, so the two Shans aren't both answering my questions. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just call me .net superhero. Not my Twitter could. handle. <laughs> that is your Twitter handle. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm a he's he's got a lot of confidence. He's he's <laughs> he does. Uh, <laughs> Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. He, he also <laughs> just started a new job, you know, working for uh, a Microsoft regional director, right? Yep. Yep. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You might even uh, know him, Sean. It's Mark Michaelis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. He's my uh, boss. Years and years ago, I... I decided to get a website, and so I got the the name Com Guru because there, there was a lot of com going on back then. Yeah, and all it did was invite people going. Are you sure you know everything about com to call yourself a guru? And so I, uh, <laughs> after paying for that mistake, um, because I didn't, I had. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I never claimed to to know everything, but you know, I am always the one that tries to come in and rescue everybody when things go wrong. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> that's a, then that's a perfect moniker. Great. So, so uh, yeah. yeah. Tell us yeah. a little bit about yourself. I've been in uh, software development for 35 years this year, I think. No, almost 35, 33, something like that. I had sort of an unusual beginning because I got a, a summer job when I was 16 and forgot to finish high school because I got so excited about you know, having a job in coding, I decided to go back to college, and uh, I forgot to go to those classes as well because <laughs> I was learning so much on the job. And so I've just been doing it, you know, for like forever these days. Um, I started, you know, back in the uh, uh, DBase three world and doing some w weird, obscure languages no one's ever heard of. And uh, when I uh, got into .NET in the early two thousands, I just Grabbed it and ran after you know a pretty long career before then doing uh, VB and uh, a lot of C sharp. I'm sorry, a lot of C plus mm. plus, and been happily in the .NET and mostly in the web space since. And uh, I've written a number of books. I'm a Pluralsight author. I they don't. I try not to write code anymore because uh, then people look at the code and they realize what's wrong with it. And so, uh, <laughs> you know what they say about people who teach. No, I think it depends on what you're teaching. I, I That's think, the point. I think with with you, you you have a knack for 
breaking things down and making sense to to developers, you know, who who have been around for a few years. For instance, one of your Pluralsight courses, the it's the combination of .NET and Angular, and you know, and all the pieces that go with it. I watched your first course on that. I guess the one that came out a couple of years ago, and it was it was helpful for me because the the .NET core side was so new, and we were actually developing a .NET core with Angular. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, it's. I've been lucky to be in a position where we started a couple of new projects and got to use current technology, wow. which is rare these days. It it it, it is. Yeah, I got uh, pretty lucky that I started into core pretty early as well. And you know, it's kind of you to say about the course. It's interesting to every time a new version of .NET Core comes out, I need to update it, and and right. so that means that I have to go in all the nooks and crannies and go, okay, what has really changed? I know what the, I know what the <laughs> uh, release notes say, but what, you know, what doesn't work now? And, and so it's been a fun ride through .NET. I had actually that same course for regular .NET before then. And so it was sort of trying to rewrite it uh, on this new platform and such. So it's been, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. After a few years of doing a lot of consulting and teaching on Silverlight, it was nice to get back into the web space after sort of being drawn into that black hole for a while. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few discussions on that black hole on our yeah. podcast. <laughs> so a lot of the things that you teach are, are new technologies that are coming out. And to be able to teach them, you kind of have to know them, you know, before other people do so that you can teach them. How do you go about learning new technologies? Well, it's interesting. The it used to be that you know I would use my role as an MVP to try to get under the covers and see where Microsoft was going. And the MVP summit, they would show us new stuff. But once I got into the .NET space, or really, especially in .NET Core and in the precursors to .NET Core, it's all just in the GitHub repo. And so you can sort of see as they're building things what is coming because it's all open source now. And so I try to keep my handle, my my eye on what is coming, and then I try to build something real with it. I have a, a number of volunteer projects I do that end up being the guinea pigs of a lot of these technologies. <laughs> um, the Atlanta Code Camp, I've been maintaining their website for a few years now, and pretty much every year it's like, oh, what do you mean you upgraded it to the brand new version of .NET and you've just you know added view and da, 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 da. and I'm trying to explain to them that if I don't do that, I'll never be able to teach it. Right. <laughs> so there, there's a number of those kind of projects that help me build these as close to real world. You know, I'm not uh, in the trenches every day like a, a lot of programmers, so I can't you know go well. I built enterprise apps with gRPC, which isn't true, right? I mean, no one has. Because it's 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 that new in, in some sense, and so I just you know I have a folder on my computer called Working, which just has a billion dead projects in it. I just delete it every like six months, and it's just where I do file new and try to build stuff. And when it goes awry or I'm not making progress or I've just taken the wrong approach, I just start a new one. And, and the the idea behind learning a new technology to me is is a lot of failure and then finally some success there's this curve of learning that 
even though I understand it, I, I'm still frustrated by it because it's the curve starts with this is stupid, and then it goes to I'm stupid, and then it <laughs> goes to oh, okay, now I understand. And um, having to battle through those first two layers is is difficult. It's like, well, why would they do this? This is the most idiotic thing. And then I get into, oh my god, I must not understand it. Uh, I'm never going to figure this out. And then you just kind of hit that slope where you're like, oh, okay. Now I understand where this fits and why they did this and what the compromises were. And and that starts sort of the approach to the way I want to teach it because the, the helping people get over those humps in a more systematic way is kind of what I do for a living now. Right, right. So you released a course on Pluralsight on GRPC uh, in the last year. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not familiar with it. Can you fill us in a little bit? Sure. So GRPC is a, unsurprisingly, is an RPC framework actually out of Google. It's an open source effort there that Microsoft has chosen to implement in .NET Core. And okay. GRPC is, is an adjunct to being able to write APIs in a different sort of way. So one of the things that when gRPC or whenever any sort of new API technology comes up is people like, oh, this must mean REST is dead and I need to approach this new thing. gRPC has its own niche that's really good. For one, it's contract-based, which is unlike that, that, which is unlike REST. And so it, it's very appealing to people that are doing things like WCF that are trying to bring it into the core world. Right. It's also binary formatted, so the message sizes are smaller. And more importantly, the encoding and de-encoding of it is very fast. It does require HTTP 2, which limits its use today in some cases, because uh, certainly from the browser that becomes more difficult or from certain devices. And mm -hmm. so if it's into this space for me where I want to be able to communicate with strong contracts and I want to be able to do it fast. And the other feature that a lot of people are attracted to is that it has native streaming built in. And so the idea of a consistent connection where you can stream unidirectional or bidirectional data is very attractive. I, I like to think of API development these days as sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Where you're going to use the right communication for the right use. So uh, no one says, you know, I have rest. I'm not going to need a message queue, right? Those are different mm -hmm. sorts of way to communicate. Uh, gRPC excels to me in inter-data center communication. So if you have services that need to talk to each other that you normally would use rest, contracts between your own components make a lot of sense and speed uh, and even ease of authentication, it's a natural fit there. The other place that's also a natural fit is IoT. Because IoT are underpowered devices, and having something that can encode and decode really efficiently makes that a better experience than trying to do REST and go over port 80 and do all that other stuff that, that normally happens. And so I certainly wouldn't replace your REST with gRPC, but you might see mobile app to data center, intra-data center, or data center to IoT as natural places for this protocol. Okay. One of the things that I, when I was looking at gRPC is I thought it was, was it designed or meant primarily for server-to-server -server communication? Or is that really not the case anymore? It, it's hard to say because it wasn't really designed with any specific idea in mind. It was designed for places where strong contracts 
are are better suited than something like REST or loose schemas like JSON. And so server-to-server communication is a really natural place for that. So if you're building microservices or you just have data center where you need to talk between components, it's a really natural fit there. Having to have every component necessarily you know, forward H- an HTTP front end so you can have REST, this sort of gets around that. It sits on top of the HTTP stack so you get the benefit of web communications because it, it actually goes through those. But it requires HTTP2 because HTTP2 brings in some of the features that gRPC needs. The biggest one of those is probably streaming, the ability to have a a longer-lived stream. And so you might think of gRPC as, in some ways, a competitor to SignalR. And the the way Mm. they're differentiated is multicast versus single cast. So having a, a stream between two components makes a lot of sense. But if you need to create something where you're multicasting that message out to 100 or 1,000 clients, SignalR is a better use case for that. And so I sort of envision a a world where we're more comfortable writing APIs across these different technologies to figure out where they are best suited. Uh, For example, I'm building a microservices example right now, and we're uh, in it. I'm going to be using message queues for asynchronous communication. I'm going to be using GPRC, gRPC for the inter-service communication, and then REST to communicate with the outside world. And, and to me, that makes a lot of sense of, even though I'm, I'm bringing three technologies sort of you know, under, the, under the umbrella of what I need to do, those are the three communications that make the most sense for those use cases. I can see how that would be, uh, would be a really good course, right? To, to see them all working in tandem for their specific use cases. Yeah, the, yeah. the the goal is to to build an example that is the bare minimum of what a microservice would be, not as an example of what you would build. But I find that a lot of the examples right now with microservices are either so indelibly tied to what service infrastructure you're using, like Azure or AWS or whatever, or they're trying to make every like make it cover every different use case that people can see it. There's a great e-commerce microservice example that Microsoft has. But there's so many moving parts, it can be very overwhelming. And so I'm trying to create a more discrete one that goes, okay, we might have two or three services. We're only going to use some of this communication. Like just trying to get to back to that like kernel of what the idea of microservices are to hopefully teach people eventually where not to use them, right? If, If you've looked at my career, a lot of my career has been, this is a really cool thing, but don't don't use it here and don't use it here. It's, it's almost the opposite of, of buy-in is people get excited about something. Like in the Silverlight space, it used to be like, please stop building your blogs in Silverlight. You're, <laughs> you're violating everything that the web stands for, right? So, right. and I apologize if either of you did that or still have no. one. But. No. <laughs> no. I, uh, wasn't a problem. I actually never got on the Silverlight bandwagon. I was on the Flash and ActionScript 3 bandwagon for, for a little nice. while, but never Silverlight. So. Well, the, you're going to have to change your skill set this year then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy in .NET Core, C Sharp, and Angular. I don't awesome. think any of those are going anywhere, right? No, no. Uh, a- Angular 9 just shipped, right? Yeah, yep. it did. Yep. They did the the... PR yesterday or the day before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's exciting to see it come come so far. Right. 
you know, from Angular 2, I guess. <laughs> I'm curious to see how Ivy, I mean, I know, right, it's not supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be under the hood kind of thing, but they've been talking about Ivy for a while now, so. Yeah, that's the new rendering engine, right? Just yes. for anyone who doesn't right. know what Ivy is. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, that, that is the new rendering engine. And I think uh, you'll see the performance in Ivy show up on these larger, you know, more monolithic projects. I've been spending a lot of my time in Vue lately for things that are less than these large monoliths. And so, gotcha. I, again, this is another one of the places where I believe like Angular, React, and Vue all, all have a space. There isn't like, you know, uh, there must be one winner that wins it all. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. You know, everyone's got its own uh, use case and different skill sets. You know, yeah. I ended up going with Angular too because I came from, from the .NET web forms world. Right. And the component architecture with Angular just made a lot of sense to me. Sure. Uh, and I think it does. It's going to be interesting, I think, to see where Blazor goes in that space. Because absolutely, in many ways, Blazor feels like halfway to Silverlight and halfway to Webforms. Like the, to, in many ways, Blazor feels like the natural maturation of the Webforms developer, someone who never wanted to really get into the web technologies. And whether it stays there or not, you know, a lot of people are talking about PWAs and standalone for Blazor right. and such. But yeah. I think if you're already in the Angular or Vue or React world, I'm not sure that Blazor is that attractive. But I've been wrong yeah. before. Well, yeah, I we had the, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think it's really interesting the technology and how they're using it and mm-hmm. some of the doors it's going to open up, possibilities for people who who don't necessarily have the time or interest to learn multiple languages. Yeah. Right. So yeah, well, time will tell, right? Yeah. Oh, time will always tell. <laughs> and I, I'm, you know, as I tell people, I've been wrong more often than I've been right. So <laughs> no, no one should take my opinions as gospel because I believed in object spaces and, and Oslo and all these different technologies that had these, you know, nine month windows and then, and then we're destroyed. Silverlight even, and to some respect, though. Silverlight was a, an interesting one in that I don't think I would have actually gotten involved in Silverlight except that I had uh, been contracted to build a course on what Silverlight would become named for Microsoft. And so when Silverlight came out, I was one of the only people who knew how to teach it. And so I felt like, you know, you have to ride the horse you came in on. and Right. But I even remember being wrong there. I had a, there was a talk at one of the conferences panel about Silverlight or HTML. And I was like, HTML5 isn't going to change anything. And CSS2's, you know, styling stack can't compare to what Silverlight is doing. And, you know, and then, and then all it took was one discussion from Steve Jobs to go, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we had uh, Daniel Roth on one of the earliest episodes of Adventures in .NET, and he was talking about Blazor. And yeah, I did make the one comment to him that I thought Blazor was Silverlight done right. So It could be, yeah, I yeah. I got that connection there, yeah, and the relationships. A lot of the concepts I got out of it really go along with Blazor, but it just it feels a lot better with Blazor than it did with Silverlight. Sure. And well, now that we have a, a WebAssembly, it makes a little bit more sense, even though the that piece isn't really 
out yet. You know, they're still working on, on, on that sort of piece. I always thought WebAssembly was an interesting technology because I thought it would be the perfect tool for uh, tool vendors, not for developers, mm-hmm. right? So if I want to drop a high-performance grid that has been written in WebAssembly and you have those guys who know how to do that really well, but I, I'm still not convinced that you're, everyone's going to write in their own language and WebAssembly is going to make JavaScript go away and, and all of that. No. I just don't, I don't, I don't buy it. But again, caveat, I'm wrong more than I'm right. It is I think one, you're right one of those there. things. Well, because, I mean, JavaScript is not going anywhere, right? No. It's, it's used too much. There are some very solid frameworks based on it. But similar to what you were saying with gRPC versus REST versus message queues, right? They, they all have different uh, strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think we'll, we'll see that some of the same stuff with WebAssembly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting because uh, a lot of the things that people hate about JavaScript that sort of from afar, if you haven't dug into it, I think are sort of false narratives, especially as mm-hmm. we get into ExaScript 6 in 2018 and 19, that a lot of the, the, the sins are gone. One of the problems I think that people have coming from .NET to, to JavaScript is, or specifically C Sharp to JavaScript, is that the syntax is similar enough that it can be frustrating because they're totally not the same language. Like the idea of uh, um, prototypical inheritance versus classes and the idea of using loosely typed uh, objects everywhere instead of making a class for everything. Like it's just the approach to me is, is so different that, you know, one of the things that I try to encourage new JavaScript developers to do if they're coming from C Sharp is don't write a class for like the first three months because you're so in tune to everything lives in a class that you, 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 you're going to lose some of the beauty that JavaScript has. Like one of the things I adore about JavaScript that we just can't do in C Sharp is just pass in an anonymous object that has some structure to it, right? We can do the new anonymous object, but getting into the fields and passing them as parameters... It's, C-sharp just doesn't have a good way to do that today. Right. Lots to, of reflection. Yeah, yeah. lots of reflection. Yep. And in JavaScript, it's just really elegant. Oh, how do you want to set up the object? Well, send me an object with all the defaults. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, and so trying to get people that are, you know, that are ingrained in C-sharp to learn JavaScript, I think even TypeScript to some respect is a, is a challenge but not really because of either of the languages. Not that creating classes is wrong in C-sharp or not creating classes in JavaScript is right. Just understanding the strengths and weaknesses of individual languages has always been the challenge. We've actually got into, I wouldn't quite call them arguments, but heated discussions in TypeScript, whether we should be using a class or an interface mm-hmm. in different places and why. Right. You know, and the front end guys have a different, you know, strictly front end guys have a different perspective. So, yep. And, and it, 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 they're, they're laudable discussions to have yeah. because, you know, every time I think, oh, you know, I don't use TypeScript as much as uh, I use it when I do Angular because mm-hmm. it's sort of built in. But in a lot of cases, I don't end up using JavaScript because I'm not building things that are large enough. I'm sorry, TypeScript. Mm-hmm. I, I don't use TypeScript enough for large enough projects that would benefit from, from the extra complexity of, of TypeScript. Even gotcha. though as a language, I love it. There are places where it's perfectly the right thing. 
But if I'm building, you know, John's pizza shop down the road and I want to bring in, you know, pre-compilers and all, sometimes I just want to drop a JavaScript file on a, on a page, write a script and just be done with it. And, and I think we've lost that um, notion because everyone's like, well, everything has to be a single page application and we're only going to have one per website, which is, you know, it's called single page application. Of course, we're going to do everything in it. I just get frustrated. <laughs> I lobbied very hard for any name but single page application back when it started to become a thing and uh, uh, I lost, okay. you know, because none of uh, none of the other ones were, you know, I, I, I heard, you know, rich internet applications, rich web, like they were all so nebulous. You might as, you know, Microsoft might as well have named it. It was that <laughs> that badly named. <laughs> can, we, can we also come up with a different name for serverless too? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because right. uh, there's always a server. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, whenever we get into that discussion, I'm like, just so you know, there is a server behind serverless. <laughs> you yeah. may not have to deal with it, but it's there. Yeah. But it's, it's, right. it's the cloud. There's no, what? There's a server yeah, in the right. cloud? Well, How does it we, stay out there? Well, you know, the, the cloud, right? A couple people just snapped their fingers and it materialized. And it's yeah. just there running 24-7 with, with no one has to do anything to maintain it. It's magic. Right? It's magic, <laughs> yeah. When I meet non-technical people and they're like, so what is the cloud? Like, <laughs> is it in the sky? <laughs> like, no, no, it's not. It's, it's just someone else's computer. It's marketing, oh, right? It's just a bunch yeah. of balloons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it used to be on every diagram you would have uh, the cloud that said the internet. cloud. Yeah. yeah. It said internet, right? That's just right. like, oh, we're going to go through the cloud. And then some marketing person ruined it for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Been interesting. I've actually been digging a lot lately into Kubernetes, or as I'm going to oh, yeah. call it, because it should be called this Kubernetes. I feel I can see that. strongly about this because everyone calls it cube control, right? right. The little right. app that you use to run it. If they call that cube control, why don't they call it Kubernetes? If, if there's nothing else anyone takes from this, please get everyone you know to call it Kubernetes because that, that's what I'm going to call it from now on. Um, I can do that. I can, I, I can get on board with that. It, it's interesting because I, I went out to Twitter and I said... Uh, what are you guys using for these different microservices, you know, things? And I got all this feedback of these different technologies for like, you know, doing API for um, API gateways and for service discovery and other things that microservices mm-hmm. sort of imply. And then, of course, I'm not remember his name all of a sudden. That's embarrassing. One of the guys from the core team said, just use Kubernetes because it does almost everything you need. You don't need all this other stuff unless you're hosting it yourself. It's like, oh, thanks for simplifying it all. Like to, to understand, like finding the services and using DNS and all of this just makes almost all the problems of microservices really go away. I sort of finally got the need for Kubernetes, and I understood it in the larger sense, but I had never deployed anything big in in a Kubernetes cluster, and so it's been interesting to sort of catch up with the rest of the world. Well, no, I'm right there with you. I've I've never used it in any, you know, real order application any to any large extent. So until you dig into something, it's you may be aware of it, but you don't really know 
the possibilities, right? Yeah, or the complexities and all of that. Yep. I get a you know a lot of people come to me because I teach a lot of courses and things, and I think mm-hmm. they just assume that I've played with everything, right? Like, right. No, right. if I haven't done a course on it, I probably haven't used it. Like, it's one of those things of like, don't assume that like I understand how to write a WebAssembly bytecode, right? Because thank God I've never had to do that. Or don't assume that, you know, that I've done a lot with one of the NoSQL databases that Mm. your organization is in love with. No, because I only, like everyone else, I only have so much time to devote and having to make those decisions, what's important and exciting to me is a luxury I have, but it also doesn't mean I don't have unlimited time and and, uh, that my wife doesn't want to be able to see me on weekends and things like that. Or she doesn't have to-do lists for me. (laughs) Whenever I'm stuck on what to learn next, a lot of times I just go back to the fundamentals and think about how I can make those things more automatic. The reason is, is because then when I focus on the fundamentals, I'm able to actually level up in all the other areas that I'm trying to learn. So I teamed up with Kyle Simpson to focus on the fundamentals of JavaScript. Kyle wrote the books, You Don't Know JS Yet. And his Getting Started ebook goes over just the fundamental fundamentals, so to speak, of JavaScript. And we're putting together a 30-day challenge where you can actually level up on this stuff, get it down pat, and then you can go and learn all of the other things that you're doing that are based on these things. So if you go sign up for the challenge, you can do it at devchat.tv slash bookcamp. That was Kyle's idea. You can get the following as part of the challenge. You get daily training videos, which are worth about 150 bucks. You get daily exercises and homework, which again are about worth about 97 bucks, especially with the coaching that we give you around them. You get access to the private Slack channel, which is worth about 20 bucks. You get access to a premium podcast series that Kyle and I are going to record. It's an eight-part podcast series where we talk through all the pieces of the book. You'll get three Q&A calls per week, and that puts you at about a $1,779 value. And what's great is you also get then the audio from the podcast, you get the video from the training, you get the experience from working, and you get the visual reading learning from the book. So you're going to learn this in multiple ways. Once again, go sign up at devchat.tv slash bookcamp, devchat.tv slash bookcamp, and you can get it for $197. If you use the code JSJabber, you can get it for $147 instead. So go check it out right now, devchat.tv slash bookcamp. Today, if you were starting from scratch, how would you develop your own microservice architecture? Would you use uh, Kubernetes or something else? Because this changed a lot since it since it you know became mainstream, so to speak. Sure. So you know, I'm still investigating this, so I'm certainly not an expert. I don't want to profess to be, but my instinct is that using .NET Core to build your APIs. And to figure out how to sort of create those silos, those separate services that, that mm-hmm. really are doing separate instances, and then hosting that inside of Kubernetes versus trying to do something like Docker Deploy, which if you use just right. Docker to do it, you end up needing a lot of add-on services that Kubernetes can do for you, which is great. But you, there are also cases for not using any of that. and You could still build microservices and host it all yourself on separate machines. I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense in today's world. I, I, I don't want to own my own servers for the most part. And so I usually immediately go to, I'm going to deploy in Azure or AWS or wherever I'm going to do that. But that probably isn't the truth for every small 
medium-sized business. So I don't want to say that you necessarily have to use Kubernetes to, to have the benefit of some of the microservice architecture. But there's also you know, a complexity case there where before you even figure out how you're going to build your microservice architecture, figure out whether you need it. Because right. there's a lot of complexity in doing it. It comes with benefits, but at some level, you have to figure out whether that complexity is worth the benefit. I think a lot of people are just assuming, well, this is where we're going to be. We're just going to build everything as a, a solely versioned silo that will be able to talk to each other. And we're, there's not going to be any overhead for doing all of that. And <laughs> if, you're, if you're Netflix or you're AWS or you're, you know, you're going to gain a lot of benefits from that disconnection. But if you're a, you know, a small business selling widgets out of your home, probably not. Or if you're building the next mobile app, maybe not. Like, just understand, you know, the, the, the key there in my mind is understanding the benefits because the, it does come with quite a lot of complexity. You got to have the right use case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because in many ways, you can refactor into microservices if you need them later. So um, starting from scratch to build a microservices, unless you already have this larger distributed application that you know you need to build, I'm not sure I would even start most applications as a microservice. At least that's the so, way I see it. Yeah. So yeah. so uh, if we move on to another topic. Um, we've talked a little bit about Pluralsight. And so I wondered, how did you get into being a, an author for Pluralsight? And the, for any listeners that might be interested in getting into it, what kind of what does it take to put together a course and get it sure. approved by by Pluralsight? So the process has changed over the years. I've mentioned that I'm usually wrong more than I'm right. Aaron Sconard approached me pretty early on to do some courses, and I told him that this idea of video based training was. I don't think was going to go anywhere. And I felt like it was just going to take time away from me teaching face-to-face -face uh -huh. courses. So about a year and a half later, I sort of, I wrote him an email and went, oh, by the way, I was wrong. And please, please, can I build courses for you now? And so that, that was sort of my process. I, I suggested he contact Julie Lerman when I had that first uh, discussion with him. And so uh, sometimes I look at, at uh, the courses she's built and was like, oh, I could have built those. Um, you can't build but, them all. Well, and I, I don't think I could have built them as well as uh, Julie. Julie knows Entity Framework way better than I'll ever know it. It's pretty impressive. And so the, the process was just as you approach them, they have you do a, a, what do they call it? An audition, which is basically a small piece of a course, usually about 10 minutes in length, just to make sure that you understand how to teach, that you understand how to sort of build a narrative that, you know, you're just not uncomfortable in front of a camera and all of this. Mm. So it, it's not a terribly high bar, but it is something that you'll want to nail if you want to become a Pluralsight author. Because for me, it's a more of a full-time gig than it is for a lot of authors. I can really focus and build a course in about six weeks. Wow. Okay. Most of that time is building the materials and recording it is actually not nearly as much time. Because once right. I've built the demos and I've built the slides, I know the story I'm telling. And then once I get, you know, I usually record them right here with this mic. Like I just turn on record and um, and put them together. And then I use someone to do the editing for me because it's painful to listen to my voice that for that long. As most <laughs> Pluralsight 
customers know at this point. But it ends up being, you know, whatever, you know, maybe 30 hours a week times six weeks to build a typical three or four hour course for me. And so much of that is is the research. Even if I know the topic well, I often don't know the the best way to teach it. And so by building, what I tell people is I usually build the demo three times. I build the demo where I figure out what the demo will be. And then I build it again in the order that I think I should teach it. And then I build it again when I actually record. And so by the time I do it that third time, I've pretty much figured out what the right, the right way to build it in uh, that is going to teach the pieces that I can sort of, we're going to do this and then we're going to undo that later because you'll understand why we want to use this other thing. You know, one of the examples I give is when I teach the .NET Core course, I could easily just create the full project template and just have people start writing controllers. But instead of doing that, I actually do what I don't suggest people to do and that is start with an empty project and actually build each of those pieces up so you can understand why all that template code is there because right. you know, in, inevitably you need to support that. And so that's, you know, that's the interesting problem to me. That's the thing that scratches the, the curiosity uh, itch in my brain. Yeah, um, building something uh, multiple times makes a lot of sense to me because I can't remember any project that once I finished it, that I didn't wish that I could go back to the beginning and rebuild it over because I, of how much I learned through the process the, the first time around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Uh, it's interesting. The, the microservice demo I'm doing right now isn't actually for a course, at least not yet, but I'm taking a different approach than I usually do. I've been a backend developer for so long that my instinct is to build the database and then build the services and eventually build the UI. And in this case, I'm actually building the UI first with no calls back to the server, just all in one in a handful of spas, actually, so that I then know what the requirements are of the UI instead of assuming it beforehand. And it's been a very interesting experience to go, oh, now I'll, I can see how the different services would need to be structured because I can now see the things I actually need. Whereas when I was building before, I was like, oh, I guess we need to be able to add customers. And when they create a customer, they're probably going to create an order at the same time. So why shouldn't it? Like, it really helps me define what those use cases for the the APIs I'm going to end up needing are anyway. It's 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 been an interesting experience to go. No, you cannot write any backend code yet. Just write in the browser first. I've actually uh, been there before. I was a .NET developer. Was a front end designer. So oh, I could nice. do JavaScript and CSS and HTML, but I would use Fireworks, Macromedia Fireworks, yeah. way back in the day, and HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. And I would actually build prototypes and have the whole flow and the whole look and feel. And we, we'd get the basics nailed down. And then the, the, at the time I was working at a, in a Java shop, they would start writing the, the back end to integrate with it. So, yeah, so I can what, see what how is, that's yeah, useful. Yeah. What are some of the more popular courses that you've done? So I have probably my most popular course is the building a website with ASP.NET Core, which walks people from the file new and .NET Core, introduces them to Bootstrap and JavaScript and CSS, and eventually gets them uh, all the way into Angular and deploying an 
than application with Angular and Core in a in a container. So it's sort of that end-to-end course that, frankly, Pluralsight isn't doing much of anymore um, mm. just because some of the needs are different. But lately, I've, I also have a pretty popular course on designing an API as well as implementing one in core. The designing one is interesting because there's there's actually not a lot of code because I'm trying to encourage people to design their APIs before they implement them. Like to mm-hmm. literally like get out a piece of paper and go, these are the kinds of APIs and these are the types of things I'm going to need and then figure out how to implement them instead of, uh, well, I designed it by writing a controller, right? That's the that's how you design them, right? Yeah, right. So, and, and those <laughs> those two have been the designing one's been a surprise. How popular that's been! I've been really happy with how that's been received. The gRPC is is popular for people who know what gRPC is, but it, some part of it is still an education to get people more interested and excited about it. But I was really, I had a lot of fun building that course. So, in in some ways, it's not as crucial <laughs> that it's the number one course or anything. Well, I can attest to how good your courses on the the full breadth of .NET and Angular and how everything combines, how how useful they are. I appreciate uh, that. I've, yeah, I've listened to a couple of them, and they've definitely helped helped cement some ideas for me and and figure out, oh, okay, so that's how that works type deal. So, because Pluralsight uh, has so many courses and so many authors. Sometimes there are courses that there's just too much competition for. So actually, wilderminds.com, I have my own uh, handful of training courses as well. I have a pretty popular one on Vue that uh, a lot of people watch, and that's using Vue with ASP.NET Core. There's also one, on, uh, a handful of them on SignalR with uh, different SPA frameworks that I was really happy to build as well. Those aren't subscription-based. They're, they're uh, just price-based. but Hopefully they're priced within most people's budgets. <laughs> At least that's yeah. We'll uh, we'll make sure to add them to the show notes. Yeah, I actually can. I'll send you guys a coupon you can send out with the show notes to give them a discount on on the, the courses on wilderminds.com. Oh, that'd great. be great. Yeah, yeah. Happy to, happy to. You're also working on a film, is that right? Yeah, the last three and a half years, I've uh, I worked on and we completed it. You know, just about a month ago a film for general audiences, not just for developers, but about sort of my experience with diversity and inclusion in software. Sort of my realization that uh, I was part of the problem in many ways. I'm hoping that film will be out in general availability by the end of the year. We're working on on getting a sales agent right now, and we're going to be taking it to festivals around the country. You can always go to helloworldfilm.com and sign up for the newsletter, and I'll be letting people know about showings in their areas as we get uh, hopefully accepted into some film festivals. Yeah, I've watched one of your teasers. I thought, okay, hey, that's it's a cool subject, right? I think it was the one where you said, you know, you started talking with other developers about their background. And you're like, wait a minute, all the people I'm interviewing are white, male, and straight. You're yeah. like, what, what's wrong here, right? Yeah. So that's good stuff. Yeah, I started, the movie started as sort of a love letter to the industry that like hmm. trying to encourage more people to get into it. And somewhere hmm. along the line, I had this sort of a moment of epiphany where I was like, you know, I've never worked with an American woman as a developer in 30 years. And it wasn't that I hadn't worked with one that bothered me. It was that I'd never noticed. 
right never occurred to me that right. that was a that that was an issue that sort of that moved the story to more of a of that piece of sort of looking back and i really enjoyed being able to tell the story of the first eight developers being all women and how yeah. it went from women dominated industry to a male dominated industry and sort of talking about some of the maybe the causes for that and, and um, hmm. some of the success stories of schools that are that are approaching more women and people of color into the industry and mm-hmm. so uh, it's been a labor of love the last, last three and a half years and hopefully we'll actually be able to get it out and people can see it on a streaming service this year that's the the goal is to get it on you know netflix or disney plus or worst case uh, we'll get it on amazon prime which is a sort of a fall fallback. Getting a movie on Amazon Prime isn't actually that terribly difficult, but to actually get a distributor to take it and actually promote it is is our goal. Right. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Well, looking forward to it. Yeah, happy to be through that whole process because it <laughs> uh, filmmaking is a lot like software development in that figuring out part of the problem you have to solve is figuring out what you're good at and what you're not good at and putting people around you that are good at the things you're not good at. I learned those skills in software. Like I'm never going to be the the world's best DBA, C-sharp, backend, and front-end developer. Like that, I I can be okay at all of those, but do I want to be, have a product that's built by someone who's just okay at all of those? And and so I was very lucky to find some really talented people that, that helped me along the way it was really a team effort to build this movie that looks more like a movie than I certainly could have ever make it look like. And I imagine like something that like this, that's kind of right. A, a labor of love. It's also hard to know when you're done. Right. Or, yeah. or when to say, okay, that's enough. Yeah. So Am I still, I still, we screened it at a conference. I was uh, at uh, a couple of weeks ago and I, I, I could barely stay in the room because the whole time I'm going, Oh, we need to fix that. We need to fix that. And my <laughs> editor is like, "We could, but you're done. Just remember, right. you said you were done. We're done. Okay. <laughs> and you know, that's. The, I mean, that's Absolutely. the problem in software, right? I mean, oh yeah. When Absolutely. are you really done? Oh, we could just refactor that one thing. Right. Right. Do you find you're, that you're yourself uh, your worst critic, or is there some pretty tough critics out there? Both. I mean, I I, I went to a lot of people that. I wanted to get honest feedback from, and luckily, because of the some of the friends I have that are not in technology, they can be pretty brutally honest about you know what was there. We did a couple of test screenings that were super helpful. Actually, cut almost twenty five minutes out of the film that wasn't didn't need to be there that I was in love with, and because some people told me the honest truth. Like you said that story like four times. I know that you want to make sure all your friends are in the movie, but that doesn't serve the movie. Like those sorts of things. I mean, again, it, it this happens in software all the time. Like I know you're in love with this technology, but it's not really helping you. Right. It, you're just gotcha. forcing everyone to learn some new thing that you're, that you're attached to. But if it doesn't serve the end product, why are we doing it? No, I think that, I think that was a good overview of most of it. Great. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. All right. So then let's move on to picks. You want to go first, Caleb? Sure. 
my pick this week, surprise, surprise, is another video game. You got too much uh, time for video games. I I have to make the time. It's 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 how I take care of me. <laughs> And and not everybody else. Have you um, put the controller in your four-year-old's hands yet? Oh, yeah. We actually have a Paw Patrol game for the Nintendo Switch that is made just for little kids, right? It's very basic. And he loves it. So <laughs> I'm starting him early. But this one is it's actually a new card game similar to Hearthstone called uh, Legends of Terra, made by Riot Games, who made League of Legends. And it is leaps and bounds better than any similar game I have played in recent memory. It's it's a lot of fun. And it's free. So cool. Cool. Yeah. I got a couple picks this week and one of them just came to me during the talk here because we were talking about, you know, the genders in programming and things like mm-hmm. that where it used to be uh primarily women and that was back in the sixties and even the seventies. And it really wasn't until advertising kind of changed the the outlook for who was right for programming and computers. A lot of the ads, I think, were were targeted towards men when the personal computers first came out in the seventies. So it, the movie I was thinking about was Hidden Figures, you know, because they they called the women there. They're the computers. So it was the women around that time were the primarily the people that do a lot of the programming. Absolutely. So, so I really like that movie. And then my uh, second pick, and I'm, I might have picked this one before. It's hard to remember all the, the ones that I picked, but I don't know if I picked uh, LinkPad before, but they just released version 6, uh, which uh, supports .NET Core and C Sharp 8. So if you have used it in the past and haven't upgraded, you might want to take a look at it because they now have uh, version 6 out. You have right. done it before, but it's well worth a, a second call out. Yeah, I definitely use it a lot just for you know, de- debugging small snippets of code, trying to figure out, uh, convert my entity framework queries to SQL so mm-hmm. that I can run it through and, and get the query plans to see what I might be able to make it better through my entity framework statements. So it really helps me a lot there. So, All right, Sean, don't know if you're familiar with picks, but it can be technology, it could be movie, it could be books, it can be anything you want. So what's on your mind these days? Apollo 11. So I've been trying to get everyone to watch this documentary that came out uh, this year. should have been nominated for a couple of Oscars as far as I'm concerned. But it's the story of Apollo 11, the first landing of the moon. But it's done without any narration. And what they did was they worked with NASA and found all this footage that had been in the vaults for years and years and edited in the voices of the people at Mission Control and the voices of the astronauts and the voices of the wives. And it's, it's, it's telling the story minute by minute. And it's just the, the most amazing way you can tell that story. You know, it just feels like, you know, I, I was a, a very young baby when we landed on the moon. So I don't really remember it. But Apollo 11 was just such an amazing movie to me. It really touched me in a lot of ways. Though I watch a way too many documentaries, so the, your, your, your taste may vary. The other thing that uh, I'm uh, pushing is The Outer Worlds. It's not a brand new video game, but it's a fairly new game, and I think it's the best game that came out this year. It's, it's an RPG by the people who made uh, Fallout New Vegas, and it's funny. And for people who work for a living, it's also fairly short. You can do it in about 20, 25 hours. 
though I've replayed it about eight times now. So I've I've sort of blown back that past that twenty five hours. It's also available as part of the Xbox Game Pass. Yeah. So if you already have Game Pass, install it right now and you already have it. But big, big fan. Big, One big little fan. thing on Outer Worlds, uh, if you go on YouTube and look for Outer Worlds speedruns, uh-huh. there's actually a video where a couple of the developers uh, actually watched the speedrun. I think it was like 12 minutes. Yeah. Beat the game. And they're like freaking out. It's it's really cool. It's, it's interesting so. to listen to them talk about, well, they're gated. That, oh, wait. Right. He's not allowed to just run past those guys. What? Right. Like, like right. so it's, it, I, would, I would love to see like the people who developed SharePoint watch people use it for like four hours. They're like, I'm not supposed to do that. What are you doing? That's right. not what we made it for. Yep. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm old enough to actually remember watching a couple of the Apollo mission splashdowns in the ocean when I was probably five years old, something like that. Uh-huh. So it had to have been, you know, Apollo was like 15 through 17, around, somewhere around that range of the Apollos. But yeah, that was that was really interesting when I was a kid. Oh, uh, yeah. Big events. They were very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And listening to Walter in the movie, they have Walter Cronkite sort of interspersed talking to the American people or really the world stage about what's going on. And it's, it's Yeah. I know how it ended, and it was still like, well, they make it, you know. (laughs) That's when I know it's a good movie. I remember watching Lincoln many years ago, and I know that they pass the 23rd Amendment. Like, I I know the history, but in the movie, when they're trying to pass this, the 23rd Amendment, I think it's the 23rd, I might be wrong. I'm like, are they going to be able to You're wrong more than right. right? Even though, yeah, uh, (laughs) even though I know... Like the history, I know how it's going to end, but it still right. has me like, <gasps> and that that that's when I know it's a good movie. If I'm, uh, if I'm when you get caught up in it, history, yeah, you yeah. get sucked in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, oh, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for taking your uh, time out of your day and spending it with us. If uh, our listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a best way? Twitter or somewhere? Somewhere else? You can find me on Twitter at uh, Sean Wildermuth, just my name. You can also go to wildermuth.com and you'll see a bunch of links uh, to my books and my articles and how to find me on different social media, as you know, including my YouTube videos and even my Steam account. You can friend me there as well if you want. <laughs> no? All right, thanks. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me or the show, they can go to adventuresin.net.com or reach out to me on Twitter. I am .NET Superhero. Thanks, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.